The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Go ahead and, and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. All right, so Jesus is known by over a hundred different names and titles in Scripture. Think about that. Over a hundred different descriptions or titles that are given to Jesus in the Scripture. So he is the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lily of the Valley. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Praise the Lord. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Consolation of Israel. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And as we saw in our last study in the Gospel of John, he is also the Good Shepherd. And in that study, we began to pull on this thread and unravel all that that means. And today, we're going to continue on in that same vein as we consider all that Jesus meant when he described himself as our good shepherd. So with that, let's go ahead and read our text, beginning in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, and he doesn't own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks in the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I just want that to land on you for a moment. Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me in the same way that I know the Father, and the Father knows me. Jesus is issuing here an invitation. He's telling us, you can know me in the same way that I know the Father. Wow, that's a trip. He goes on, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He goes, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. So who's he talking about there? He's talking about all of the Gentiles who would eventually come into the family of God. And, and so there are many sheep pens. We're one local sheep pen, but there is one flock. Jesus went on to say, I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So many sheep pens, one shepherd. His name is Jesus. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed. He's raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember, Jesus makes all of these remarks on the heels of this incredible miracle that he has performed there in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. He passes by a blind man. This man had been blind from birth, and Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, and rubs the mud in the man's eyes and says, you ought to go wash that off, don't you think? And so he sends the man to the pool of Siloam, and as soon as he washes away the mud, he comes back and his eyes are open, and it's this incredible miracle. And Jesus uses that miracle as the pretext to issue this discourse about who he is. I am the good shepherd. 
which of course, as I mentioned in our last study together, makes us a bunch of sheep. So turn to the person next to you and just say, welcome to the sheepfold. Maybe you don't want to be a sheep. Maybe that doesn't sound so great to you. And to that, I would say, come on, it's not that bad. <laughs> don't laugh at that. That only encourages me. My kids point that out. But as we pointed out, sheep, their well-being is purely dependent on the kind of shepherd they have, right? Sheep depend on their shepherd for everything, from shelter to leading them to green pastures and food and, and provision and protection and all of the above. I mean, they're easily scared. They have no defense mechanisms. And sheep tend to wander off and get lost. So I found this news story True story. Uh, it comes out of Istanbul, Turkey from 2015. And the story talked about how 450 sheep in a particular area wandered off the edge of a cliff to their own demise. I don't, I don't know why I think that's funny. But <laughs> I'm imagining one little sheep just head down, so engrossed in the beauty of the grass that he's chewing on, and just, ah, you know. And then the next and the third, uh, 450 sheep. This is crazy. But it underscores this idea that, that Isaiah, the prophet, spoke of. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, he said it like this. And let's read this together out loud. He said, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Hey, I, I see myself in that verse. Anybody else? I mean, how many times have you been in the safety of the sheep fold under the protective, watchful eye of our good shepherd, and you start to look over the fence and think, huh, the grass looks a little greener over there. And we wander off, and we get in all sorts of trouble, and we find our way to the cliff's edge, and some of us, we walk headlong over the cliff. But every time we stray, Jesus comes in search of us, and he brings us back to the safety of the fold. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go in search of that one lost lamb. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that because I've been that one lost lamb more than once or twice. Amen? And so Jesus is the good shepherd. He provides, he protects, he guides, he leads, he cares, and he loves his sheep. And he calls himself that. But when you come to the book of Hebrews, it's interesting because there in Hebrews 13, He's not just referred to as the good shepherd, but he's called the great shepherd. He's not just a good shepherd. Yes, he is. He is a good shepherd, but he's more than that. He's the great shepherd. But then you come to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter refers to Jesus not just as the good shepherd or the great shepherd. He refers to him as the chief shepherd. Now, this is interesting. Because shortly before Jesus goes to heaven, after he has risen from the dead, he goes to restore Peter because Peter had fallen. He denied the Lord three times, famously so. Remember, he was bragging, I'll never deny you. Those guys might, but not me. And the Lord says, oh, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny it three times that you ever even knew me. And sure enough, he did that very thing. And and, and then Jesus restores him. Just as Peter had denied the Lord over a fire, Jesus cooks up a little breakfast over coals, hot coals, and, and he calls Peter to the fire, and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter is hurt, he's cut to the core because he knows what Jesus is doing, reminding him of those failures, and he's restoring him, but it still hurts. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus gives him the same command. He says, good, then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And so Peter had his marching orders from Jesus. And in that moment, Peter becomes an under shepherd and he carries out his marching orders to feed the sheep because this is the job of every good shepherd to make sure that the sheep are well fed. And it's important that you know that just as Peter was an under shepherd, in that same sense, all pastors share this title. In fact, the word pastor is derived from the Latin word for shepherd. So when you decide to plant yourself in a church, you need to choose carefully because you are in that moment putting yourself under the leadership and care of that local shepherd. And not all shepherds are the same. Not all are good. And so in this passage of scripture that we've looked at, Jesus draws a series of contrasts between the good shepherd and true shepherds and someone who he calls a hireling. And so there are shepherds that are not really sheep. In fact, there are some shepherds who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul the Apostle talked about this as he gathered the, the leaders of a particular church in a town called Ephesus, and he goes, I'm so concerned because I know that after I depart, there's going to be wolves that come in, and they, they want to seek to ravage the flock, which, by the way, this is Satan's agenda. He wants to scatter the flock. We read, that about, we read about that at the end of verse 12. It says, then the wolf can come in, and the flock will be scattered. Satan wants to divide, he wants to isolate, he wants to, 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 to scatter the flock. And so he puts his bullseye on the back of shepherds because he knows if he can strike the shepherd, then the sheep will scatter. And so you all need to be praying for your shepherd that God will protect me and be a covering to me. I covet your prayers. But also you need to understand that the, the devil wants to divide the flock. And the religious leaders in Israel were like those wolves. They claimed to care for the people, but in reality, the only thing they really cared about was themselves. They were hirelings. They were in it for their own ambitions and agendas, and they wanted to pad their own pockets, and they wanted to protect themselves and their power. And so Jesus draws a line of distinction. And as we consider the differences between the true shepherd and these hirelings, as Jesus calls them, you can perhaps view that through the lens of different kinds of pastors. So let me highlight a few of the differences. Number one, the hireling is motivated by money. True shepherds are motivated by love like Jesus. And we see this in the very name that Jesus gives them. As the name would suggest, a hireling or a hired hand, their chief motivation is money. And let me just set a little bit of cultural context for you. In that day, if you had a flock of sheep, and you couldn't go care for them yourselves, usually you would have one of your children or one of your sons go and watch over the sheep like Jesse did with David. But if you didn't have any sons, you'd have to go and hire that work out. Now, this was problematic. Why? Because shepherding was, was tough work. The days were long, the nights were cold, the pay was low, and the work was hard. 
And so you didn't have like a line of people volunteering to do that job. In fact, the only people you could hire typically to do the work of a shepherd were people that everyone else had passed over and didn't want. And so in that sense, these hirelings became notorious for being lazy and careless. They tended not to care for the sheep. They viewed it as just a job, and they were known to bail at the first sign of danger. And that's not just true of hirelings. To be honest, there are some pastors like that who see this, what I'm doing here, as a job, as a way to advance their career. They are looking for upward mobility. And it saddens me to think that there are some pastors who, instead of focusing on feeding the sheep, are more interested in fleecing the sheep. Does that make sense? You know those pastors where all they talk about is money. And they're always crying and saying, oh, God's broke, and we need your money, and God needs your money, and we're going to do another offering. I just feel like that one right there, they have a lot of money to give, you know. And they go on and on, and it's always about money, and, and they've done great damage to the church because of their overemphasis on this particular issue, and, and really, it, they're not reflecting God's heart. I just want to tell you, God's not broke. I mean, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything. And it's not that God's after our money. What he's after is our hearts. And he knows that we tend to wrap our heart around our wallet. And so God says, honor me with the first fruits of what I've blessed you with. So that, in our context, that means we tithe. That's, and some of you are going to enter into this journey maybe next year where you give the first 10% of your income back to God as a means of saying, I trust you, Lord. And I believe that you can do more with 90% of my income than I could do with 100% of it. And so it has nothing to do with God's desire to come after your money and everything to do with God's desire to have your heart. But there are those pastors and preachers for whom it's all about money, which is probably why in Paul's list of qualifications for church leaders, he places not being a lover of money near the top of his list. And so we have the model of Jesus, who is the true shepherd, the good shepherd. And he does the opposite of these hirelings, right? He reveals or models for us the heart of every true shepherd when he climbs down the ladder and becomes poor on our behalf so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. In this world, the paradigm goes, you become the boss and you get people underneath you and they serve you and then you can make more money and this and that. And Jesus takes that whole pyramid and he puts it on its head and he says, I'm the Lord and master of, of all of you and yet I'm here as one who serves. The son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as I look at that, I'm reminded of the fact that being a pastor is not a career choice that one makes, but it is a calling. And I have a call of God on my life. I'm not the CEO of this organization, and we're a big church, and we've got a school down the road, and hundreds of people that, that get their means of, of income from this place, but I'm not the CEO, and they're not my subjects, and you're not my clients. I am a pastor, which means my job is to feed the sheep, and we open God's word, and we take our cues from him. I'm not a professional. I'm a pastor, and this is our sheepfold, and I'm just another sheep. <laughs> and by the way, I would do this for free. 
because there's nothing else I'd rather do. Um, I love getting to be a pastor. I love serving you guys. Ah, oh, so good. Let's look at the next thing. Hirelings don't care for the sheep, but true shepherds care deeply for the sheep like Jesus. Again, we see this in verse 13, where it says, the man runs away because he's just a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. For him, it's just a job. So instead of asking, where can I serve or what can I give, he's more interested in what he can get. Instead of giving himself for the sheep, he thinks the sheep exist to serve him. True shepherds are nothing like that. True shepherds have the heart of Jesus, and Jesus cares for you as his sheep. Let me just tell you this. He cares about the details of your life. If it matters to you, it matters to him. And so we have the invitation in 1 Peter to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And there's no care too big. There's no care too small. If you care about it, he cares about it because he cares for you. And so we're instructed to take our worries, our anxieties, our fears, our burdens, our weights, the things that this world heaps on our shoulders, those things that weigh us down. And those are burdens you were never intended to carry. And Jesus says, you just take those and offload those at my feet. Why? Because I care for you uniquely, personally, specifically. This is Jesus' heart for you. You ever notice how in the Gospels, Jesus always had time for everybody. He never seems hurried or frantic. He's never like, email me, I've got to go. He's never anxious or frantic or hectic. He never sees people as an interruption because he understands that people are the point. Sheep are the mission, and he was a shepherd, and so he ministered to every person. And we looked at this verse last time, but I want to read it to you again out of Matthew 9.36, where it says that when he saw the crowds, he was moved to compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And I remind you again that that phrase, he was moved to compassion for them, it's a phrase that is used to describe the internal state of Jesus more than any other word. To have compassion is to be moved at the core of your being for someone else's concerns. It's to, to yearn for someone. It's to have sympathy for them. And I'll just say it like this. It's to pastor them because you can't pastor well without caring for your sheep. And my father, our founding pastor, modeled this for me and us so wonderfully. He would be the last person here. People would be walking to their car to leave, and he'd run them down. Hey, do you need prayer? And you guys have stories, and you've shared them with me, and I love them. And I want to have that heart. In the Proverbs, King Solomon offered the following advice to his son, who would be the future king of Israel. And he said this. This is Proverbs 27, 23. Let's read it together out loud. Know well the condition of your flocks. Know well. And the only way I know how to do that is by getting out there and spending time with the sheep. There's this great book that I have on my bookshelf in my office. It's a book about church leadership and what it means to be a pastor. And I love the title of the book. It says, they smell like sheep. That's how you know you're shepherding well, because you have the smell of sheep on you. 
Listen to this quote from the book. Biblical shepherds are those who live among the sheep, serve the sheep, feed, water, and protect the sheep, touch and talk to the sheep, even lay down their lives for the sheep. Biblical shepherds smell like sheep. Oh, so wonderful. Number three, hirelings abandon their sheep at the first sign of danger, but true shepherds defend their flock at all costs, like Jesus. It's interesting that four times in our text, Jesus talks about laying down his life for the sheep. He refers to it in verse 11, then again in verse 15, then again in verse 17, and then he says it again in verse 18. How different, how markedly different this is from the hired hand who at the first sign of danger is lickety split, he's gone. Because when the going gets tough, the hireling gets lost. Instead of defending the flock, they desert them in the hour of their greatest need. Not Jesus. He stands between whatever threat is coming to attack his sheep or his disciples. How many times in the Gospels do you see Jesus going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, and they ask the disciples a question, Jesus like, hey, hey, I'll answer that for them. And Jesus defends his sheep, and this is what all good shepherds do. They put themselves between the sheep and whatever danger is threatening them. King David reflected the heart of a true shepherd in that instance where he was trying to appeal to King Saul at the time and, 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 and get Saul to agree to allow him to go and fight Goliath. So we know that sets the table of this scene. And Saul's like, I don't know. Like, he's a giant, and you're just a little pipsqueak. Look at you. And this was David's defense to Saul. He said, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. And I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Oh, David is a bad man. I love this guy. I mean, and put yourself in his sandals for a moment. You're there. You're watching your father's sheep. And, you know, you've got that one problem sheep. There's always one, isn't there? And this sheep is always causing trouble, and he's always picking fights with the other sheep and biting them on the leg. I don't know. And, and this sheep, it wanders off all the time. And sure enough, you look out, and oh, there goes Curly again. And he's wandering off, and he's getting near the edge. And, and then you see a bear or a lion coming and lurking and prowling, and it's making its way towards poor little helpless Curly. And in that moment, you might be tempted to think, well, it serves him right. <laughs> Curly, I tried to warn you. Bon appetit. Come on, guys, let's go. <laughs> but that's not the heart of King David. He loves each and every one of his father's sheep. And so he runs up to the bear, and he defends the sheep and pulls it out of the lion's mouth. And this is hand-to-hand combat because he says, when the lion turned on me, I grabbed it by its mane, and I killed it. Oh, that guy, that's so cool. <laughs> and in risking his life for the sheep, David models for us the kind of heart that God looks for in all pastors and shepherds. It means defending at all costs, whatever it takes. For our context, it could mean speaking out on something that's unpopular or politically incorrect. It might mean calling out heresy or wickedness or carnality or worldliness and understanding that the true shepherd defends the sheep, even sometimes from themselves and each other. And this is what Jesus modeled, and finally, our good shepherd willingly laid down his life for the sheep. 
And we see this in verse 18, where Jesus says, no man takes my life, but I willingly lay it down. And because I lay it down, I also have the power to take it back up. And I love the fact that Jesus highlights how he has the power to lay down his life. Make no mistake about it. Jesus' life wasn't tragically cut short when he was in the prime of his life. It's not a sad story. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave his life for you and I. And he proved this in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the soldiers came with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, and Jesus stood right in front of the disciples, and he said, who are you looking for? And they're like looking around like, I thought we were supposed to be the ones asking the questions. They're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I am. And when he said, I am, all of those soldiers fell down. I love it. Oh, I can't wait to get the Netflix of that scene when I get to heaven. He just speaks who he is. Who are you? I am. He takes for himself the very name of God, and he demonstrates his power, his ultimate control, and his authority over the affairs of that instance in all mankind. And then he helps them back up and, okay, dusts them off. Now, who did you say you were looking for? <laughs> They're like, uh, you, I think. And he goes with them willingly. Later on during his trial, he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate is a bit miffed because Jesus isn't defending himself, and Pilate has a bit of a soft spot for Jesus, and so at one point he says, listen, don't you understand that I have the authority, I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Don't you want to say anything? And finally, Jesus speaks up. He says, oh, you don't get it. You have no real authority here except what's been given to you. And don't you know that at this very moment, I could call for the Father, and he would send 12 legions of angels to defend me? Just think about that. A legion of Roman soldiers consisted of about 6,000 soldiers. So we're talking upwards of 72,000 angels that Jesus had at his beck and call. He could have released himself from the, the pain of the crucifixion at any moment. And let me just remind you as well that in Isaiah, one single angel over the course of a single night took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So just think what 72,000 of them could do. Jesus was not the victim in this scene. He was in total control. Yet he didn't call for those angels. And the truth of the matter is, he didn't even need the angels because he's almighty God. And he could have come down from the cross just like that. And there were those who stood at the foot of the cross and they said, they hurled insults and they said, others him he saved, but himself he can't save. And they meant it as an insult, but there was some ironic truth to what they said. He had saved others, but they were wrong in this fact. Himself, he cannot save. He could have saved himself. But if he had come down from the cross, if he had saved himself, then he could not have saved you and I. He would have forfeited the right to purchase us because it was only in going to the cross that Jesus could make a way for you and I to find our way into the hands of the Father. And so in Isaiah, we read that he has engraved our names on the palms of his hands. And we were the joy that was set before him that allowed him to endure the cross, though he despised the shame because he went through it for you and for me. So as we close this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. How do you know if you're a sheep? 
Jesus is a good shepherd. He's a great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. But how do I know I'm really one of his sheep? And he points to the answer in verses 14 and 15, where he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as I know the Father, and the Father knows me. So this is an invitation that Jesus is giving to us. He's saying, I know you. And we talked about this last time. His knowledge of you is intimate. He knows you inside and out, backwards and forwards, upside down. He knows your dreams, your fears, your worries, your cares, your concerns. He knows everything there is to know about you. He wrote the book on you. But here he's also saying, and I I want you to know me to that same degree. It's an invitation into a relationship with him. And I love this because it's something that's going to take forever to, to really get to the bottom of. There's a sense in which we'll never fully be able to comprehend God in all of his infinite goodness and his love and his mercy. He's multifaceted. He's multidimensional. That's why we have over 100 names to describe him. And those don't even begin to, to plumb the depths of who he is and his nature and his heart and his passion and his compassion for you and I. And so it's going to take millennia and bazillions and gazillions of years for us to even scratch the surface on who he is and how much he loves us. 10 million years from now, we'll be getting together and being like, oh my gosh, there's this new thing that I just, I was exposed to of who Jesus is and how much he loves me. The psalmist alluded to this fact when he wrote, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. You'll never get to the end and be like, oh, I've got him figured out. <laughs> and yet at the same time, we have this invitation to know God. And it's a journey that begins on the day that you surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ, and it carries you through the rest of this life and on into eternity. And the more you get to know him, the more you look like him, the more you hunger and you thirst for him. And so there's this beautiful, simple little prayer that you see scattered throughout the Bible. It consists of three words in the English, but it's just one word in the Hebrew, and I want to teach it to you today. We, we see men like Abraham praying this prayer. Moses prays this prayer. Samuel, the prophet, he prays this prayer. And so did Isaiah. And here's the prayer. It's three words. Here I am. When God called to Abraham, he said, here I am. And then God sent him to Moriah with his son, Isaac. When Moses turned aside to see the burning, the burning bush, God called to him. And Moses said, here I am. And God commissioned him to go back to Egypt. When Samuel, as a young boy, called out, here I am, speak, Lord, for I'm listening, the Lord spoke to him and commissioned him to be the leader of the nation of Israel. And when Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me, God commissioned him to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. And so in English, it's three words, here I am. But in the Hebrew, it's one word, hineni, hineni. Can you say hineni? And the idea in this word is, here I am as a soldier who is reporting for duty. Here I am, you already have my yes. Whatever the question is, whatever the order is, you say jump, I say how high. You say turn, I'm turning. You say go, I go. You say stop, I stop. You lead, I follow. You're the shepherd, I'm the sheep. So here I am, Lord. Amen. And so I was camping earlier this week. I don't know why, it seems like I was saying that a lot lately. 
with, with a group of high schoolers from the church. My son was with uh, me and, and Drew, our high school leader, and, and several others. And we were sitting around the campfire and just enjoying the presence of the Lord. And, and we just gave God some room and some space. And we prayed that prayer. And then we just waited and we listened. And here's why it's so important that you listen, because <laughs> you need breakthroughs. You need solutions. You need guidance. You need keys to doors to unlock the doors. You need to know which doors to walk through. You need, you need all of these things. I need all of these things. And I, I don't have any of that to offer you, but he has all the breakthroughs. He has all the solutions to all the problems. He has all the keys to all the doors. He has all the wisdom to dispense and to guide you through the decisions that you need to make that affect your life. And so when you say, here I am, Lord, you have my yes, and you position your heart in such a way that you're standing at attention, waiting for the orders, God responds to that request. And so would you just stretch out your hands like this, palms up, we're going to reflect on the outside, the posture of our hearts on the inside. And I'm going to lead you in this prayer. I want you to repeat after me. Here I am. Let's say it in Hebrew, because that's just cool. Hineni. We're here, Lord. We're waiting. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.